0: So the Bible tells us that there is a time coming when there will be a global leader who we often refer to as Antichrist. He is known as the Beast in Revelation 13. Um, he is uh, he is somebody who will have global reach and authority. The world will fall down at his feet, seeing him as something of a god. And he will, according to Revelation 13, uh, verses 16 through 18, also oversee a system that is not just spiritual in nature, but is also in connection with the spiritual element to it, uh, also includes economic uh, and global economics, to the point, it will be regulated to the point where without a mark, we typically refer to, again, biblically speaking, the mark of the beast. Without that mark, you will not be able to buy or sell. Again, Revelation 13, which is a chapter you should familiarize yourself with from start to finish, because a great many things are tied together from what the Old Testament has to say, in particular in uh, Daniel in numerous places, uh, chapters 7, 9, really through the rest of the book. Uh, as well as what Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in regard to the man of sin, the son of perdition, who will ultimately go into the temple of God, declare himself to be God, demand to be worshipped above, uh, above all that is called God. Revelation 13 is a tying together of so many of these ideas and, and a filling in of even more blanks in that regard. Again, not uh, not the least of which those details would include the mark of the beast that will be taken. But this is a centrally managed economic system. Uh, that is also in concert, as I mentioned a moment ago, with a spiritual element. Uh, the Antichrist will ultimately be um, seen as a god, both by his own declaration of self-deity, but also he'll have with him uh, someone known as the second beast, or also known as the false prophet, who will drive people to worship him. Now this will all be under the influence and empowering of Satan himself who is referred to as the dragon in Revelation 13 and elsewhere throughout the book of Revelation. But the the dragon or the devil or Satan ultimately empowers both the Antichrist and the false prophet, the first and second beasts, uh, with supernatural endowment. They are able to do miraculous things. Uh, the Antichrist himself will garner worship to himself by doing something no less than rising from the dead. At least it will seem that way. Um Whether or not it's a legitimate return from the dead, whether it just appears that way, the world will certainly see it that way. And they will worship him. And even declared that he's unable to be stopped, who can make war with the beast and who is like him? Uh, and of course, again, the false prophet propagates this idea by having an image built, uh, having the people of the world build an image to him that the false prophet will breathe life into, and it will Demand people ultimately to to worship the antichrist. It will become this living, breathing, and ent- well, breathing, I don't know, but this living entity uh, that will ultimately be another means through which the antichrist receives worship. Um, now, in concert with that, this is where we start coming to the idea of the the global economic system with the arrival of antichrist and the false prophet, uh, and pulling together more scripture in regard to other elements that come to play a third temple will be built. As a matter of fact, this is where this image will stand that comes to life and and drives people to worship the Antichrist. Jesus himself refers to this event that Daniel refers to as the abomination of desolation or the abomination that makes desolate. Uh, Jesus refers to it in Matthew 25, verse 15. Daniel again uh, refers to this. And this in Revelation 13 is where we see this come to be. Paul again references this when he goes into the temple of God and demands to be worshipped. This is the time period where this all ultimately comes uh, and reaches its crescendo. I mention all of those other factors because the mark of the beast is not on the scene right now. It will be on the scene during that day. A global system of buying and selling is not on the scene today, but it will be during that time. What we often do uh, in our podcast here is when we talk about prophetic things, things that have to do with biblical prophecy uh, and as relates to eschatology, last things, we like to mention that what we're doing here really is talking about how it may be that we get from where we are to where we ultimately will be when this system is in place uh we're sort of reverse engineering a little bit. We're taking a look at how things may unfold as we get from point A to point B. And of course we're not just starting to get to point B. Point, you know, getting from point A has begun a long time ago. Uh, if we really uh think about it, Peter himself basically said that the last days were ushered in after the resurrection of Christ. There in Acts chapter two he references this, quoting Joel chapter two. So we have been in the last days for a long time. So there's a lot of things that have been unfolding, happening Pieces on the chessboard moving around, uh, bringing us to the point where ultimately checkmate is in view. That's why we look at what's going on around us and we try to understand them so that we can get a sense of where we are prophetically, but also because in understanding these things, it gives us opportunity to answer the questions that the world outside is asking. It's not just believers that are Bible prophecy minded that take an interest in these things. The world is such now and is moving in such a direction right now that there are a lot of unbelievers who are wondering what's happening and what sense can be made of it. And we actually can speak to that intelligently, both from a uh from just a paying attention viewpoint But from a purely, truly biblical standpoint, we can show them that the Word of God actually has spoken to the direction that the world will be going in prior to the return of Christ and those events that will take place leading up to it. And so for us to spend time understanding these things is only a help to our witness to those around. I do believe that there is a lot of room uh, for, for people to begin to develop a trust in the Word of God, the Bible, when they recognize that God has, in fact, spoken, and He's proven it by speaking about the future in advance. This is not Nostradamus kind of stuff. This is the stuff of of reality. This is where actual events of history are being laid out in advance so that we might know them and in knowing them, recognize the nearness of Christ coming to establish his own kingdom as spoken of uh, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and so on. Um, so this coming economic system, let me start by throwing out something here that's an idea. This coming economic system will be global in nature, uh, but it may not necessarily mean that there's a one-world currency, per se, uh, but it certainly would at least speak of the fact that there is some system that is global in reach and requires a mark of allegiance to Antichrist without which you cannot buy or sell. Now, it is important to, re- to point out here that in uh, Revelation Fourteen, three angels are commissioned to bring a word to the world uh, during that time. One of them warns against taking this mark. So it's probably worth pointing out at this early point in our message to say that if you are here during that time, and I don't believe the Church will be here during that time. I think we'll be raptured before the Antichrist comes at all. But certainly, uh, by the time this system is in place, I think we'll be gone. But that being said, there will be some who come to faith During that period of time, that might be you. You might sort of be in disbelief right now, thinking, well, I'm on the periphery, I want to hear about these things, but I'm not really sure about this whole Jesus thing. Well, at that point, hopefully you're sure about this whole Jesus thing, and this hopefully is some help to help you realize that if you are confronted with having to take this mark of allegiance to this global world leader who is doing supernatural things with a partner who is doing supernatural things at the temple in Jerusalem, which is yet to be rebuilt, Uh, And all these things are happening. Hopefully you'll remember these words and recognize that this is what the Bible has spoken about and has for thousands of years at this point. And so... That being said, let me jump back on, to, on topic here. The coming economic system is not necessarily a global currency, although it could be. I'm not saying it isn't or it can't be. I'm saying, but the very least, it is a system that is global in scope. And again, it revolves around the mark of the beast from a biblical standpoint, again, spoken of in um, in Revelation 13 in that, that mark is your entrance into this global system at that time. Not today, because none of these other elements are on the scene. But at that time, you will be required to take this mark in order to participate. Right now, these things are in the development stage, and that's a big key to our understanding of what's going on around us. There are those who are very, very uh, devoted to studying biblical prophecy that unfortunately have gone out a little too far on a limb and said, this is the mark of the beast, or this is the Antichrist uh, system and that kind of thing. It's too early right now to say that. Uh, As of today, uh, July 5th, 2022, it is too early to say whether something on the scene today is that system. It is not too early to say, however, that these things are at least conditioning agents and cultivating a development of people's um, acceptance of these ideas. So when it comes on the scene, it will be received by most Most people during that period of time will be conditioned to simply go along with this system because they've sort of been taught to do this. Um, Technology has sort of moved them along at a certain pace, and rather than try and figure out what all this stuff is, they just sort of say yes, and they'll take whatever it is that comes because it's just where we're going. And they give no thought whatsoever to what ultimately the bigger picture is. Remember, the Antichrist system is ultimately expressed through the Antichrist and the false prophet, but it is empowered by Satan himself. The end game is to ultimately deceive a world to come against Christ at his return, which is what we see in Revelation 19. When Jesus returns, coming in power and great glory, where every eye will see him like thunder and lightning flashing across the sky, he comes and returns And in that context, in that setting, the Antichrist has so convinced a global community to stand against Christ at his return that they actually try to stop him. Psalm 2 references this as well. Um, So how do we get from here to there? Well, I'm going to talk specifically more about the economic system today. Uh, But in days ahead, again, we're going to talk about things like the Great Reset. We're going to talk about some of these other elements um, that have to do with conditioning the world to join together in unity ultimately against Christ when he comes. Um, Now, again, you may be listening to this thinking that's pretty far-fetched, but I would suggest to you that you read the scriptures on these things and that you consider looking into some of the references that we're going to make today and the resources that we'll make available uh, in terms of websites and links and things you can read and watch. So, from the economic standpoint, uh, one of the major moves forward in regard to a global economy which will be in place when Antichrist comes uh and i and, and i'm I'm saying that because I'm presuming that's how it's going to unfold uh i I've never really held the view that the Antichrist will just show up suddenly flip a switch, and everything suddenly is his system. I do think what's going to happen is is that there will be a gradual conditioning of mankind. Uh, to sort of embrace certain ideas, technologies, ways of doing things, ways of living life, so that when he comes, he sort of rises to the the the, the top of the fold as the one who sort of brings all these ideas together and brings the world to its its attempt at utopia. Um, but I do think that this is something that has a long runner leading up to it, and one of those things that is on the runner that helps us get to that place is what is called central bank. Digital currency, CBDC, uh, for short. This is a system of digital currency uh, that is part of the world of crypto, in a sense. It is different from cryptocurrency uh, in that cryptocurrency is what is called decentralized. the The beauty and the the um, the draw of the idea of cryptocurrency is that it is a currency that is outside of the normal currency that nations use. Like in America, we use the dollar. But nowadays we use things like Bitcoin and and various versions of cryptocurrency. Uh, there are a number of them out there. Bitcoin is typically like saying Coke. It's just sort of a, a term that just sort of speaks of this thing. Um, but but the idea of cryptocurrency is one where you can buy and sell, you can do transactions in the marketplace. Um, uh sometimes just in the digital marketplace online but sometimes you, in person like you can buy a, a Tesla with cryptocurrency and that kind of thing so it's it's a real fiat currency um and so it's used but it is decentralized there's no the government doesn't regulate it the government doesn't print it quote unquote or or put bitcoins out there per se this is a uh a digitally mined digital currency uh concept here that that is embraced by many. I actually don't delve in the crypto world very much, but uh but the, the this is something that is embraced by many um because it is a another way of doing business that is free from government regulation. Or so at least it, it would it it purports to be. Um, there would be ways for the government to shut it down or you know shut down power grids or do different things if it really wanted to eradicate digital currency. But I don't think governments really do want to eradicate digital currency. I think instead what they would rather do is regulate digital currency. And this is where the idea um, of a central bank digital currency comes in, because this now becomes a form of currency that can be and is in some cases already beginning to be managed by the various governments that have digital currency. Uh a central bank digital currency, uh sometimes you'll hear terms like stablecoin and this kind of thing. These are uh these are terms and ideas that speak of the idea that there is a government backing behind the system ultimately, although it is still dealing in digital currency. So the idea being that ultimately uh, this system, which is centralized, and what that means is that a central uh, institution, whether it's a bank or a nation a government I should say a government of a nation would regulate manage uh, maybe dispense you know keep track of all that kind of thing uh, regulate how much is out there all that kind of stuff as opposed to decentralized which is the fundamental difference between uh, central bank digital currency and cryptocurrency cryptocurrency is non centrally regulated. It is decentralized. Uh, There is no central governing authority over it per se. And so it is very attractive for that reason. However, it is also prone to great volatility. Uh that's one of the big selling points of a central bank digital currency is that because it's regulated by government, it can be managed in such a way like regular current paper and coinage currency today, where it can be managed by various apparatus that governments use in like, you know, uh, um, putting more money into the economy, taking money out of the economy in order to try and keep pricing at a certain level of stability. So. Governments see this as a means of creating a kind of currency that doesn't require paper or coinage and therefore managing and keeping track of it no longer ceases to be, no longer continues to be the big problem that it is. But now a digital currency becomes highly manageable. Not just in terms of how much of it's out there, but even in terms of things like the transactions that take place. Um, in, in the cryptocurrency world, uh, there is this term called blockchain technology. Blockchain is simply a fancy way of saying record keeping. And so there are essentially, if I can put it this way, a chain of blocks. And those blocks represent transactions that have taken place. And in some chronological, I guess strictly a chronological sense, every transaction that is made in that digital world is there's a record kept of, and it's a record that is not kept just in one place, but is sort of, again, decentralized. And so there's no way to really erase that record. It'll always be there. And this is a good thing. Uh, At least it can be a good thing. It could be used in a bad way, as we'll see in a moment. But this blockchain technology means that there's an ever-running record of digital transactions that take place out there. Now, a central bank, uh, various very central bank, digital currency, mechanisms are being, uh, or, or, um, you know, those who are, are seeking to implement central bank digital currency are considering blockchain technology because it will allow them to also keep a record therefore of all of the transactions that have taken place digitally. Now you may not have noticed, but we just moved from a decentralized bit of information that's out there that anybody has access to to a system that has a record-keeping capacity managed by a government or an institution of some kind. But generally speaking, what we are talking about here are governments ultimately regulating uh, both um, the central bank's digital currencies but also the blockchain connected with it in terms of record-keeping and that kind of thing. Now, um, the idea of centralizing a monetary system as we move in this direction here now, the, this creates a, a situation or a scenario in which access and control of that currency resides no longer in your hands, but now in the hands of an institution like a government. Uh, for example, when you go to the store right now, you have a wallet or something like a wallet. And in that wallet, you have dollar bills of some of some denomination. Maybe you've got a 20. You went to the store, you went to Kroger, you bought your groceries, you got 20 bucks out over so that you could just have cash in your pocket. And then you go down the street and you go into a shop and you buy some for 10 bucks. You give them a $20 bill, they give you $10 back. You just regulated that entirely yourself. You had money in your pocket, you gave it to them, hard currency. Um, In a uh, in a digital, central bank digital currency system that were thoroughly that, the idea that it was purely now a digital system, that transaction would not have taken place by giving a 20 to somebody. It would happen likely by virtue of you taking your mobile phone, holding it up to some kind of a device or them scanning it or whatever it would be, and, uh, and that transaction now taking place without any physical money changing hands. Now, we currently do this, uh, a version of this, with things like Apple Pay or Google Pay or something like that, you know, or some other version of, you know, or if you're using crypto on your phone and you've got PayPal and you can pay maybe with through your PayPal with your your crypto or something. Um, however it is that you do that, we're kind of already used to the idea of the ease of function in that. Uh, I don't have to carry dollar bills. What if I lose my wallet? Probably not going to lose my phone because that thing's practically attached to me. <laughs> Which we could easily start talking about the mark itself on your right hand and forehead. How easy that would be. Which, by the way, it really would be. It's just that the Antichrist is going to use it, so it becomes this 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 horrible system that will damn you for all eternity if you take the mark. But, but the idea of a system that, um. That is encouraged to be used because of its ease of use is a pretty easy sell for most people, and we already by and large are used to the idea of doing transactions without handing money over to people, at least in most of your developed countries. you know there are places where people still even barter and that kind of thing, but by and large, the world is becoming technologically sophisticated enough where there is a a big move <coughs> toward just using uh, electronic transactions and that kind of thing well. If your financial institution is the one issuing the central bank digital currency uh, or some version of that, that, there still seems to be something kind of homey about that. It's my bank, and therefore I've got my bank's app, and I'm paying maybe through my app or some kind of thing. But banks are regulated by the government. Uh, ultimately, whether it's through the insurance, uh, the FDIC and the insurance that they, uh, that they, they have, that they get from the government's backing saying they'll pay for uh, up to $250,000 if something happens to your money in the bank, or whether it's through, um, um, the discount rate that the fed gives banks, uh, when banks borrow money from the government. And then of course we see that when it comes to our interest rates when we buy, take out a loan or get, you know, interest on our, our money or that kind of thing. Um, governments are... Ultimately, uh, I should say banks ultimately are beholden to governments through those kinds of tools and also through regulations of various kinds. And so your local bank, even though it's a local bank and it may feel folksy and homey, it's really not ultimately. Uh, There are very few banks that you could go to probably at all anymore. And most people wouldn't bank at a bank that wouldn't be federally insured because if something happened to their money, they'd be out their money. And so there is this sort of symbiotic relationship here between the local bank and the federal government. And so one day, if the government moves in this direction, this will find its way down into your local bank. And so when you do your banking, it's going to be in a a very different kind of a world than you're used to, financially speaking. Now, let me flip the coin over for a minute, because not only is uh, the bank um, from a top-down thing going to become part of a system – uh, that that falls into this digit this sort of digital approach to things, but ultimately what that means is that if this system becomes purely digital, then that means your access to those funds or loans or um, anything that you want access to, or for that matter, all of your own financial dealings, the data behind all of that, is now part of a larger system. Undergirded by some version of a blockchain technology, which makes all of the transactions that are digitally done now overseen or managed or at least accessed by something on a federal level. The government who has put in place this central bank, ultimate central bank digital currency technology that all banks are now becoming part of or will become part of, they now have access to your data. And this becomes a gigantic change in well, I don't think it's overstating it to say everything. Uh, we are used to a certain amount of privacy. We go to an ATM, we use a PIN number, put our card in, get our cash out, or put our cash in, whatever we do. And there's a bank record there and that kind of thing. And under some kind of a federal, um, you know, warrant of some kind, they probably could access some level of that information. But in a system that is entirely built on this digital technology – those lines become very blurry. As a matter of fact, those, that very point becomes or is becoming one of the biggest discussions within this whole world on a federal level. The issues of privacy concerns if we were to move to a CBDC kind of a system. As a matter of fact, uh, the president uh, here in the United States uh, has signed an executive order uh, with the intent that our there's a bureau that will begin looking into how to set up. A central bank digital currency system here. What are the pros and cons? What will happen? What? Uh, how will this play out? What would it take to implement such a thing? Is it a good idea to implement such a thing? Now, I personally think that that this is all just another conditioning thing. I think probably a decision's already been made to go in this direction, but it's now this is sort of it's being distilled out to the you know uh, out to the public to say, okay, well we're thinking about this, and other nations have. Either are either further along or less far along, but many nations are looking into this right now. The most well-known adopter of this technology at the moment is China, uh, and their digital yuan. You can watch; it's easy to find, uh, like and CNBC uh, videos of, of, and other videos and other articles and such that describe sort of how the system is working in in China right now. There is some number of cities that have basically implemented this, where people with their mobile devices. Go to a store, and uh, the, the, the the buyer has, you know, the, the consumer has on their phone an app that has a certain amount of digital yuan given to it from their account, and then they go ahead and they just, you know, scan it and use it. Again, it's like Apple Pay or something like that, but it's not Apple Pay. It is actually a government-instituted system that has access to your funds and is funneling to you those funds as you need them. And so this system is working out reasonably well over there, and so it's likely going to be pushed out to more and more cities, uh, and and ultimately other countries are beginning to see this as as being a not only a matter of convenience for consumers, but a matter of having information on the buying habits and such of those who are who are are utilizing that system. Again, this is where, and in China, privacy is not something that is considered a high commodity like it is here in the United States or most Western countries. Um, We have a different worldview on that kind of thing, whereas in China, it's really not that way. And so this idea of it kind of rolling out there makes perfect sense because in that environment, it can roll out there. The people aren't really going to argue against it. It's just the way things are. The problem is is when that mindset becomes our mindset, where we just sort of feel like we give up our rights and that kind of thing because convenience is worth giving that up. If you don't think you've done that already, let me suggest that we all probably have done that at some point. Um, How many of us have or have had a Gmail account in the course of our lives? Well, when we signed up for Gmail, we basically signed up to get targeted ads sent our way. Uh, which means that Google is looking at our emails and reading all of our, tra- our our correspondences and that kind of thing. Not like there's a person sitting there, but there are algorithms going through all those things, pulling out bits of information, all that kind of thing, that then can allow them in your sidebar to start putting up targeted ads that are just for you. You might be looking there if you're new to this, um, and and all of a sudden you look to the right of your inbox there, and you see this list of ads that are things that you're kind of interested in. How did they know that? Well, they don't know that because they're guessing. They know that because they know probably more about you than you do in many respects. And so we have already sort of gotten used to the idea of handing over uh, certain amounts of our privacy in order to appreciate the convenience. For example, uh, Google's office suite, email system, all the calendaring. It is awesome. It is Probably the single best tool out there as far as interoperability, connectivity, using Google Drive and calendar and email and docs and spreadsheets and all these different things. Uh, connecting all kinds of apps are made to connect all kinds of business tools to your Gmail account. From an ease of use perspective, it's hard to find anything that is so seamlessly and beautifully well integrated as that system. However, it comes at a cost. And it's not just Google. All of the major, um, you know, email players and that kind of thing are utilizing your data in some way to create a user experience that is customized to you. And you love it because it's customized to you. But it's costing you some of your privacy. This is why, uh, you know, companies like um, Tutanota or, you know, any of the other, um, um, you know, um, oh, gosh, what am I? I use it myself. What am I thinking of here? The... Um, whatever, any of these, you know, privacy-based email systems and that um, are are great systems because they sort of remove you from that world, but they don't have the kind of interoperability of apps and stuff. And so privacy comes at a cost. You have to decide for yourself what's more important. I would suggest to you that privacy should be more important, Um, not just because in principle it's better to be private, but because large tech companies are utilizing this information uh, and big tech companies, like banks, are also beholden on different levels to the to their ver- to the governments that they uh, operate under, and and data is sort of the um, is sort of the basis upon which all of these things we're talking about and where the world is going. Uh, is ultimately uh, the things that are going to come out in regard to where this world is going they're ultimately built upon the collection of data and the using of that data to accomplish certain purposes and this is where I'd like to move into the 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 next section here what i'm going to kind of wrap with here over the next uh, short little bit is this idea of of ESG or environmental social and governance criteria uh, this is a Score, quote-unquote, uh, based on non-financial criteria uh, to determine whether or not you contribute in a positive or negative way to these three categories. Again, environment, social, or governance. Um, it is a philosophy that also applies, by the way, both to individuals and also to businesses. But the idea of where you stand on these three areas will have something to do with your access to resources in the world in the days ahead. Now that's a big statement to make. If you didn't hear me say it, let me say it again, where you stand and how you measure based on these three, uh, areas is going to have a lot to do with your access to resources in the world, in the days ahead. Um, as a system becomes more digitally managed and as that digital system is managed by, uh, ultimately government entities, um, they become now the the gatekeepers to the resources that are available to their citizenry and the way that they are beginning to determine your access to those things. It's not really hard yet, but one day it'll be a hard reality that our access to these things will be based on on where we stand. And again, I'll use the word score in quotes. Um, but basically, we're being measured based on our views in these three areas. Now, what are they? Well, first, and far as far as uh, environmental goes, we're talking about where you stand or what's your view on things like climate change. Um, what is your carbon or environmental footprint look like? Now, what does that mean? Are you driving a car that is gas-powered? And if so, are you driving an old car that is burning lots and lots of emissions and putting emissions into the atmosphere and causing global warming? Uh, are you somebody who uh, utilizes lots and lots of natural resources that ultimately are, um, that are creating issues with the ozone and that kind of thing? Where do you stand on that? Uh, it is interesting to me that, you know, at, uh, our energy secretary, when confronted about the idea of, of rising gas prices, sort of flippantly said, well, everybody should just go out and buy an electric car. Well, most people can't afford to go out and buy an electric car. You know, that's that's not something that the average person can just go drop 40 grand on an entry level uh, electron, electric car, an electronic, but electric car. Um, and by the way, I have nothing fundamentally, uh, I have no fundamental problem with an electric car. Um, I am electric gas, uh, electric gas, electric lawnmower by, I, I don't care, but it's just, you know, I can't afford an electric car at the moment, you know, and that kind of thing. I, I wouldn't mind having a Tesla if I can afford it, but the idea of, of having electric cars fine, whatever, we're not really stopping emissions because it, it, it takes natural resources to create the electricity that ultimately provides for the electric car. Uh, so that's kind of a weird misnomer to, to, to say your footprints shrinking because of that, but, but anyway, whatever it's, a, uh, but Where you stand on that issue though? Global warming, melting of the ice caps, uh, emissions and all that kind of thing. Uh, how do you feel about factories pumping out all kinds of, you know, manufacturing plants pumping out, you know, greenhouse gases and all that kind of stuff and our gases that are hurting the environment and that kind of thing. Where do you stand on that? Um, what about social? That's another category. The idea of where you stand on social issues like gender or transgenderism. Uh, where do you stand on gay marriage or abortion? Uh, you know, where, where are you on, uh, BLM and that kind of thing? Uh, are, are, you know, where, where do you land on that kind of thing? What are your views on that kind of thing? Are you contributing to society as a whole getting better based on your views on these things? Or are you somebody who's sort of impacting on a negative sense in these things? Uh, governance would speak more to the idea of, of government and business and their practices in regard to things like diversity and leadership, uh, salaries for CEOs, equity in those regards and those kinds of questions and that kind of thing. So uh, ESG is, again, uh, just an acronym that speaks of these three areas that are becoming increasingly a standard of measure of both individuals and businesses in regard to access to resources or contracts with the government or businesses being willing to do business with other businesses based on where they measure on this. Uh, an example of this would be if a business uh, in some some area, we'll call it um, some technology business, Google, for example. And of course, I don't know that you know, I, I've not read where they stand on some of these things. I have read some companies uh, where they stand on these things, but I'll just pull Google out of the air. Um, let's say Google would not do business with some other company because they don't have uh, adequate diversity in their leadership or the salaries of that leadership are not uh, are are not equitable when it comes to those on the other end of the pay spectrum and that kind of thing. Uh, equity is a big term right now. The idea of 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 moving ever closer to the idea that there's not really a gap between people's income and that kind of thing. Um, this this again falls into a term that generally is uh, you know becomes sort of a, a trigger word. But I'm going to I'm going to use it here and then ex- briefly explain socialism. The idea that the government uh, or some overarching entity, typically the government, would have Um, sway and power uh, to determine how resources are used and with the idea that there would be equity across the board among all of the citizenry. So essentially ESG is tapping into that kind of a mindset and saying, how do you square in regard to the philosophy that we should not have much disparity between different people at different levels of business, government, society? And so all of these moves are ultimately serving toward moving humanity, not just in one nation, but in all nations, ultimately forward into a particular direction. Um, now, by the way, if you're wondering, well, how do they find out the answers to the questions you just asked? I mean, how do they know where I stand on uh, transgenderism and how do they know whether or not I think drag parties in kindergarten are a good idea or something like that? How would they know that? Well, they would know that through your social media. They would know that through the kinds of subscriptions that you subscribe to—magazines, TV shows, stations—or things you don't subscribe to, uh, by definition as well. They could recognize this, uh, learn this through your spending habits, um, maybe through your voting record and that kind of thing. Now, you might be saying, "Well, those things are private." Currently, they—some of them are. Your social media is not private. Everybody can see your social media. All the social media companies can see your social media. And this is why on Twitter, for example, which has been in the news for the last few years in regard to their censoring people that, that are, you know, um, not saying uh, things that are in line with kind of the party line right now. And that sort of thing. Um, we've learned very quickly that social media companies and tech companies like this have tremendous power to silence and censor anybody they don't agree with, or that doesn't agree with them. Uh, and so, Yeah, you might think it's private, but not really. And it's not a far step then to assume that one day our banking, our purchasing and and spending histories now will suddenly become data that is available to some entity that will have sway over our our sort of entrance into uh, access to resources and that kind of thing. Again, this is a discussion that is part of the larger discussion of moving into central bank digital currencies that ultimately will stand upon blockchain technologies that mean every transaction and potentially every social uh, interaction can weigh now into because it's all just data. Access to data means access to information about us that can not only serve to make things more convenient, but can actually be used to make things extraordinarily inconvenient for us if we don't line up with those who ultimately uh, are making decisions about what is or is not environmentally conscious, socially conscious, uh, or right thinking in terms of governance and that kind of thing. Um, all of these items have as an undercurrent um, the view that on a global scale, we should be seeking to make the world a more equitable place. Now, if we just stop with that statement, okay, well, that sounds good. I don't, I don't want starving children in darfur i don't I don't want uh homelessness i i I want people to have stuff so that they don't have to be poor and that kind of thing and as a Christian, I genuinely do want that i I don't want you know people starving and suffering and that kind of thing. Uh, I just saw a commercial on TV yesterday while I was eating about, you know, like one in eight children, I think, in the country go home to a home that doesn't have food on the table at dinner and that kind of thing. And, you know, it does move you. I mean, why, you'd have to be inhuman not to care about something like that. And so when you hear something like that, that we should all be working toward a more equitable world, there's something that resonates with the human heart and says, you know, that, that, that which God has put within us to have compassion towards others is, is, Pricked by that. But there are some questions that have to be asked, like, well, whose ought are we subscribing to? Whose ethic are we subscribing to? And is that ethic consistently right? And is it consistent with what God has said is right? Um, that, that's a legitimate question. Um, you know, I, I'm, if I want to give to help support somebody who's in poverty, that's one thing. But if the government decides that resources are all going to be used for that, is that government doing the right thing in the right way? I mean, what if I don't agree with what they say is right? What if I don't agree with the way they approach equity and all that kind of thing? What if uh, that equity comes with it, you know, other caveats and stuff that I'm really opposed to? What recourse do I have in that case? Well, potentially none because they now know all of my data. They have the capacity to give me access to my own money or maybe access to spend my money on my central bank digital currency backed app on my phone. If my ESG score is not real good, I might go to Walmart one day or I might go to um, a gas station one day or a grocery store and try to pay for my stuff and it may not take it. And I have no control over that because they're not taking dollar bills anymore. If I can't get it with this, I can't get it. And it's not in my power anymore. This is where this is where the system at least very clearly has the the capacity and potential to go. Um, When governments have a record of all of our data, and they can then use that data. And by the way, and I'm just kind of quick aside here, we are, um, we're at a time where quantum computing is already starting to break in. Quantum computing is bringing computational capacity to such, uh, a fast and vast capacity that they are now saying that most encryptions uh, would not be able to stand against a quantum computer's capacity to break that encryption. What that means is any privacy measures at all that currently exist, digitally speaking, whether it's your passwords on your phone or your massively encrypted bank transactions, or whether it's your encrypted email, uh, a quantum computer could break all of those encryptions and do it fast. Which means privacy is gone potentially. Now we're beholden to whoever manages that quantum computing power to assume that they're altruistic or that they respect privacy or something because they're currently at least now. And of course, every, every time you pick a lock, lock makers learn how to make better locks on the quantum level, quantum computing level, that becomes a very, very ominous task. Uh, and one that likely is a cat and mouse game that would go on forever with the cat generally winning. Uh, so I think it becomes important for us to become aware of these things because most of this is already hap. Well, all of this is already happening. Most of it is starting to happen to us. We are starting to enter into a world where this is the norm, where this is where we're going. And, um, you know, it's almost trite to say it now, but there's a lot of people that are still waiting for the world to go back to what it was before COVID. We should recognize that we're never going back to what it was like before COVID. Uh, and this is where somebody who really has been on the outside of this stuff and is maybe listening for the first time, trying to dip their toe in and get a sense of what's happening, uh, all of a sudden gets the cold uh, splash of water in their face we will never go back to the way it was. We are only going forward. Um, And when we do, it won't just be on a local level and it won't just be on a national level. This will take place on a global level. Number one, because this is just where it's going. And global leaders around the world are getting together and talking about how to make this a reality for the sake of equity around the world. Uh, and this is where you could easily start talking about the idea of digital identities for everybody. ID 2020 was the organization that uh, initially was kind of at the forefront of this, and that's morphed into other uh, tangent organizations now. But this idea of creating digital identity for all people in the world so that they can be reached with resources and medicines and those kinds of things. But again, that system also allows that person now to become known and, and their data to be part of an over uh, uh, a larger uh, overarching system. Um, it will become global. And one day when this system or these systems that are managed nationally ultimately come under the auspices of a global entity, that becomes a very different world entirely now. Um, And this is what's happening. And by the way, this is not just a possibility or what if, this is actually the the very goal and desire of a number of entities around the world, but probably the most um, influential and front-facing organization that is moving things in this direction and is seeking to steer the world in this direction is the World Economic Forum. Now, if you've followed this podcast for any length of time, we have spoken a lot about the World Economic Forum, and we're not done. We'll continue talking about things in the days ahead. But the World Economic Forum has has held its yearly meetings. Davos, in particular, is the the most prominent meeting that they hold. But the ongoing work throughout the year that ultimately finds its sort of outward expression at the Davos meetings uh, is has been, for the last 50 years, about creating a world that looks like what we're describing. The world is now looking like what they've wanted for the last 50 years. Now, even if we grant that many of the people within that organization over the years, and even today, have in their minds the idea that this is just the best thing for the world. Uh, the world will be better if we have this stuff all in place. Um, and we're just talking about the eco- the economic part of it today. We're not even talking about all the other, uh, well, the other four pillars of of what is known as the Great Reset. Uh, the great reset for those who are un- unaware watching this is a an agenda that is uh, uh, put forth with the idea of of reapproaching five major pillars that basically encompass all of human life on a global scale. Economics is one of them, and this is what we're talking about today. But it also talks about Environment, which we've touched on politics, social things technology all, and different things like this, and so we're going to talk more about some of these things in the days ahead as well uh because I want to keep this at the forefront of of uh of of your of your attention uh in the midst of doing the Bible studies and all the different things we do on this channel. This is something that I want to make sure that we uh, utilize uh this outlet as a means to keep these things in front of your mind so that when they begin to unfold more fully and it becomes more overtly obvious that this is what's happening, you'll have a baseline understanding at least. And of course, more than that, if you've decided to go looking into it further on your own, that's why we provide other, uh, links and, and, and things to read, articles, videos to watch and that, uh, that are generally produced by the horse, from the horse's mouth. Um, these are not, uh, you know, I don't put tinfoil hat people in the, you know, um, with all respect to tinfoil hat people. Uh, I don't, I'm not really relying on, on you know, that kind of thing when I'm providing resources. I'm, I'm sending you to the World Economic Forum to read it. I'm sending you to Klaus Schwab's books with references to read them. I'm sending you two links that explain some of these things that are, uh, you know, respected news sources and things like that. I want you to understand these things, uh, not just from my own mouth, but I want you to hear them say it themselves and that kind of thing. So, it's important that we learn about these things. But again, the World Economic Forum, just briefly as we kind of bring this in for a landing, um, is uh, an organization that has far, far reach, globally speaking. And it is, it is right now an organization that leads by influence. Uh Nobody is forced to do what the World Economic Forum wants to do. However, most people, uh I shouldn't say no, most people, but many leaders around the world uh, are on board with the philosophies espoused um, by the World Economic Forum, ways to bring the world together into unity and equity in all these different areas we're talking about, creating a better world for everybody. Um, however, based on their picture of what that world is supposed to be, and I and I've I mentioned this before in a previous video about the Great Reset versus the Kingdom of God, and the difference between these two is that this system is a is ultimately a very humanistic world it is a very utilitarian world it is a world that in their minds is beautiful and rich and equitable for everybody but is noticeably and decidedly non uh, uh and it 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 leaves no place for god in it uh not that god is wrong in their thinking whatever you want to be religious and all that kind of thing but this is a world that is really not being built on some kind of a theological perspective or something. This is man ultimately coming back from the ashes of a pandemic, trying to build a world that is ready to take on anything that comes and unifies together against any kind of global threats and all that kind of thing. Again, these are noble sounding ideas, but they're very humanistic in their underpinnings. Uh, And that becomes very problematic when it comes to those who understand that there is a kingdom coming that is going to ultimately overthrow the government that this philosophy and these organizations are part of in the day that it comes why because as we see in revelation 19 this world is going to be completely under the sway of a leader who has led them to be uh, to stand against Christ when he comes in other words human history is not the result of simply man's uh, seeking to build empires that one day can unify the world uh, human history is God unfolding His purposes and plans with a decided, determined, ordained end in mind. And the call is for man to come on board and know this God of creation who has created them to know Him and to be in fellowship with Him and to fall in love with this God who loves us uh, and has created us that we might know Him and that kind of thing. This is, these are ideas that are completely foreign to this global, um, entity that is ultimately coming together. And so when we talk about these things, um, and, and again, I'm going to have plenty of links down here. You can spend time looking at them, but and, and like I said, we'll be talking more about the fourth industrial revolution, the great reset and different things like this in the days ahead. But as we talk about these things, I always want to make sure to emphasize as we bring them around to the, to an end that these things should not scare believers. Uh, they probably should scare unbelievers, but believers ought not live in fear of these things coming to be. If we do live in fear of them, it's probably living in fear of the idea that my IRA might collapse or empty out or my 401k may not uh, ultimately, I may not have access to it. Or what if I have trouble getting food or, or gas in my car and that kind of thing, practical things that we do rely on and are used to just sort of having there all the time. Um, any of you have started getting some food aside or started thinking about ways to cook food if, you know, if all of a sudden electricity gets shut off or you, you can't afford gas to get to the store or something, how would you, you know, do you have enough food to sort of carry you for a period of time? And how do you have the means to cook that food? Uh, if the normal traditional means suddenly aren't available to you for some stretch of time, you know, you're starting to think in those terms a little bit, but by and large, most of us don't think in those terms. Oh, if I run out of food in my fridge, I'll just run down to McDonald's. Well, what if, what if McDonald's can't get meat because the truck drivers can't get gas to go pick up the food and bring it to McDonald's? Um, what if farmers, uh, all of a sudden, uh, something happens where they're, um, you know, either subsidized or not subsidized. And suddenly that has a massive effect on crops and, and herds and that kind of thing. And then the food supply chain is ultimately interrupted. Um, there's lots and lots of different things that could be brought to bear on this. Most of them are outside the scope of our general thinking. So we may face difficult times in the days ahead. And one of the reasons I share these things in these videos is because we ought not think that difficulties like this couldn't happen to us. Here in America, we're just not used to that anymore. We've been at sort of the top of the... The heap for a long time, you know, our, you know, the dollar is strong and our economy is strong in this kind of thing. Well, I put a link to Ray Dalio's book in here, which is a brilliantly written book. And I've also put a link to the video that sort of summarizes, uh, the book. I I encourage you to watch the video, but I'd really encourage you to read the book too. Um, but he describes sort of the rise and fall of a series of empires that felt like when they were at the top, it was just never going to go away but it always does and a certain number a uh, certain number of years go by and this cycle happens again and in America we're at the end of that cycle we're we're right there where we're about to fall and all the indicators of our falling economically and and therefore influentially politically and that kind of thing in the world are there and are ripe to come down right now now, this is not, again, sky is falling stuff. This is the trend of history simply repeating itself as it has many times before. It's just not something that we are generally conditioned to think like because most of us are not old enough in this generation to remember what, uh, to know anything about the previous empires and that kind of thing. And in history, we don't generally learn about it until something comes and we try to understand what's happening to us now. Well, if you want to understand what's happening to us now... One of the answers to that is what's happened to nations before. And so we find ourselves in that same kind of a place right now, and it's worth learning about this so that we can be ready for what may come. Now, again, as believers, when this comes, we understand that this is just the ebb and flow of history that is ultimately leading into a determined end. Uh, and we do know that the time will come when Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. And We'll rule and reign with him, according to the book of Revelation. We know that we will return with him when he comes. Um, However, there is no guarantee that prior to uh, not just the second coming, but even the rapture, which I think happens at least seven years, if not longer, uh, before Christ establishes his kingdom, that doesn't mean that we're still not going to experience some very significant difficulties before Jesus comes for us. Our hardship is not the measure of whether or not the rapture happens. The rapture will happen when God determines it, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, Romans 11. Uh, we'll find out at that point. Uh, we'll find that we'll go home when God has determined it. So there's no guarantee that we may not face difficulties. Remember Jesus himself said in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And this becomes the perspective and the priority that should undergird and, and really give platform to our thinking and our approach to how we, uh, how we come at life. Um, we should realize that as these things unfold, that our time is getting short. That we are getting closer and closer to Christ wrapping up human history and are ultimately going to be with Him, Him establishing His kingdom, all of the things that the scripture has told us and that gives, that give us great tremendous joy and fill us with anticipation. These things are coming. If we really know that and believe it, then that should affect the way that we live. Add that in concert with the fact that our citizenship is in heaven. This world was not built to last and the things that are in it were not built to last. We as believers are intended to be consumed with far greater and, and farther reaching things than our next house or another car or, uh, or, or anything like that. We need these things to live and survive. It's just, that's one thing. But when they become the, the all encompassing desire of our heart, We've gone askew. We've gone astray from from where our priority really should be. And as these things move forward, we are forced into realizing the, the fleeting nature of the things of this world. Of course, Jesus spoke often and eloquently to this idea. You know, what do I do? My silos aren't big enough to hold all my stuff. I know I'll tear them down and build bigger ones. You fool. Tonight, your life is required of you. And who's going to get all your stuff? Solomon said the very same thing. Who's to say that when you die and and you fade off the scene, all this stuff you've amassed yourself, who's to say it's not going to be left to a fool or somebody? And so the idea here is not to live for these things. If we have them, fine, great, that can be a great blessing in that, but they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be what we are. And times like these force us to realize that in a fresh way. And I think it's, it's, it's the Lord really doing that to our benefit that we would wake up and recognize the days in which we live. And because we do know where we're going, because we do know how the story ends, we can live without fear. Again, our fears are based on losing comforts and that kind of thing or even some necessities. But ultimately, even if things get worse than we could ever imagine, we do know that there's a shelf life there. If I could sort of bring a, a, a sort of a little, uh, Pun into this thing with the idea of food and the shelves and that kind of thing, but our, whatever our sufferings end up being like in this life, whatever how difficult it may get, it's only for now and for here. We have an entire eternity with the Lord where this is going to become a fleeting, fading memory. It's going to be seen for for whatever purpose, God may want us to remember some part of it, but it's certainly not going to be longed for in heaven. We're not going to wish we could go back and have those things, but rather we know what is coming. We know how it ends so we can live fearlessly today and also in the priority that God would have us in terms of gospel living and gospel ministry. Um So that being said, I, I want to wrap there because we've uh you know gone pretty long here. But, um, again, we're going to be talking about these things in the days ahead. And so, uh, and of course, we're going to come back to our Roman study. We're going to uh, continue to touch on other things as we go through in that. Um, but I do feel like there is value in taking time once in a while to kind of put together a post that touches on these things in a little bit deeper, uh, fashion. Uh, my hope again with this post is that it would be one that is uh, informational and helpful both for those who just want to dig a little deeper into this subject and understand it better. But also I hope I was able to present it in a way that was kind of plain English enough uh, to where um, somebody who's new to this whole thing, and this is going to be shocking, could listen to this and get a sense that, okay, I understand what you're saying and let me look into it now a little bit uh, in, in a non-sensationalized, non-frightening way, but just here's what it is. And I want you to look at it. And then of course uh, a last reminder, that these things, because they should force believers into a gospel-centered priority, um, these become our opportunity, these understanding, these ideas, I should say, become part of our resource to reach the world outside. There are those outside that are wondering what in the world is going on here and and what's happening, how do I make sense of this? Well, as believers, we can make sense of it. We can say, well, look, this, this is the world that is laden in sin. This is a world under the sway of the wicked one. This is a world that has fallen... And as beautiful as so much of it still is, it is still fallen. But this is not ultimately what God has created us for. There is, in fact, a new heavens and a new earth coming, Revelation tells us. Uh, Among the last things that the Bible tells us about a new uh, heavens and new earth that is coming, and that we were created ultimately to be with God and to experience that eternity forever. And so understanding what's going on around us now gives us a hunger for those things to come to be. Come quickly, Lord, as John would say. But it also gives us resource to share with those around us. So if you have been watching this and you're an unbeliever, what I mean is you've never put your trust in Jesus. Jesus, who went to the cross, died for your sin, was buried and rose again the third day. This one who knew no sin, but took on your sin and mine, that we might take on his righteousness, uh, that we might be able to know God and know for sure that we are his. Um, you've never come to that place where you've received him. You've never put your trust in Jesus himself. Let me encourage you right now, not to wait till later, not to wait till tomorrow, not to wait till you go to church on Sunday, but right now to realize your lostness, to understand that apart from Christ, all of the stuff that is going to come down on this world, you're going to be part of that, and ultimately you're going to go down with it. Uh, the only saving hope that there is, not just that you have, but that anybody has, is in fact Jesus himself, and the fact that he took our sin upon himself. Sin is the reason why Jesus came. We were outside of God's grace. We were born in sin, born in iniquity. We, we didn't just become sinners over time through bad behavior. We were born in it, hopeless from the from the outset. But Jesus came to fix that, to ultimately restore us, that we might be in right relationship with God. And it's all because of what he did. It's not because of what you do or what I do. The Bible says that salvation is by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves, that of God. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so let me encourage you right now. Today is the day that you should come and receive Jesus and walk with him and become his own. So I'm going to pray right now and give you that opportunity. And I invite you to pray with me. And I'll give you a, uh, in just a second. I'll give you that opportunity. But let me just begin to pray. Father, thank you that, Father, in, in spite of all the things that we look at and realize that are uh, indicative of a world that is falling apart, it is reaching the end of its uh, of its lifespan. It is finally coming to a, an end, and it's also coming to a head. As the world is becoming increasingly opposed to you, increasingly hardened to the truth. Uh, ultimately, uh, it will find its most awful expression uh, when Jesus returns, and the world seeks to stop him from claiming that which is his and establishing his kingdom. Father, for those of us who know you, we are thankful that we will return with him, that we're safe and secure in our Father's loving arms because of our loving Savior's sacrifice in our behalf. We thank you that Jesus, God in the flesh, came into the world and took on our sin upon himself, paid for it when he died and was buried, rose from the dead, and ultimately, Lord, now because he lives, we will live also. And I pray that, Father, those who are watching today and listening to these things, would realize that uh, that time is short. The opportunities for coming to Christ are one day going to come to an end. One day, there will be those who will harden their hearts so much and reject the love of the truth so firmly that God will send them strong delusion, and they will ultimately believe the lie and ultimately give in to that which the Antichrist has misled them into. I pray for those watching and listening right now that they would not wait until then to try and get right with you, but rather right now would be their time. If that's you, I invite you to pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner, that I have kept you away. I have been my own God. I have done things my own way, and I have rejected you. But I do believe now that Jesus died for my sin, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. And I thank you that because he lives, so too will I. And I thank you for your love and your grace toward me and that he who knew no sin took on my sin, that I might take on the righteousness of God in him. I do pray that you'd help me to walk in your ways until I see you face to face. And I thank you that when I do, I'll be unashamed and unafraid, all because Jesus took my sin upon himself, and now I'm free. So Father, I love you and thank you for this, and I praise you, and I ask you to help me to be a trophy of your grace for others to see until I see you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord for that. Uh, I do hope you'll continue watching and and following along as we uh, do some of our verse-by-verse studies, as we talk about things that are going on in the world around us from a biblical perspective. Um, Certainly, if you're ever passing through the Franklin, uh, Tennessee area, come on in and pay us a visit. Um, You can also go to our church's website at calvarychapelfranklin.com to learn more about us as a fellowship. You can watch our YouTube channel here or go to my personal website at parsonspad.com to watch all these videos as well. You can also reach out by email or commenting on those videos. And so thanks for watching and thanks for following along. If you did, by the way, just pray to receive Christ, I would encourage you to let me know that. I'm not going to ask you for money. I'm not going to ask you to do something for me, but rather instead, I want to just help you begin to take your first steps. And one of the things that I will recommend to you is that you find a good Bible teaching church, a church that teaches from the Word of God, verse by verse, wanting you to learn all of it, uh, that you might know Jesus better, that you might grow alongside of other believers who are growing in their faith as well. And um, it's important that you have that, that you be able to fellowship with believers, both giving and receiving within a body. So, um, but anyway, let me know. And uh, certainly I'm very thankful to hear that you uh, that you came to know the Lord and we'll be praying for you in the days ahead as well. So thanks again for watching. Hope we'll catch up with you again next time. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. We'll uh, continue on this subject and others uh, in our daily posts, or I guess I shouldn't say daily. Sometimes it's daily-ish, but our regular posts. But thanks again for joining in. We'll see you next time. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace forever. Amen.